Amen, amen, amen. Excellent job. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Danny. Appreciate that. And uh, I say to, to Jake, boy, that's the way to go. Pick you a good role model like Brother Danny. Amen, amen. Boy, I tell you what, the world throws a lot of role models out in front of our young people that really aren't worth following. Boy, I'm telling you what, find somebody that loves God, that's lived a life of faithfulness to God, and say, that's who I want to be like. Boy, I tell you what, that's awesome. Appreciate you, Brother Danny, investing in uh, Jake. Wonderful song and singing at the cross this morning. The title of the sermon is The Glory of the Gospel. And the glory of the gospel is that old rugged cross. And so, boy, I tell you what, just tied everything together. Go be in Romans chapter number 3 this morning, Romans chapter number 3. Now, I have to admit to you that uh, in originally studying this passage, sometime back, originally studying this passage, I really thought that Romans chapter 3 was going to be just a couple of messages. I knew it would be more than one, but I thought, you know, one or two messages, would uh, we would move right on through Romans chapter 3. But, boy, the more I study and the more I read, the more... I see in this chapter, I don't know if we're ever going to get out of Romans chapter 3 because, boy, I'm telling you what, it is just full of the goodness of what God has done for us. Last week we looked at verse number 21 where we saw the tremendous message of the redeeming power of God wrapped up in two words. But now, because of Calvary, because of the cross, because of the work of Christ, because of the intervention of our Savior, everything has changed. And we looked at that powerful message of those two seemingly insignificant words. But because of those words now, man can find redemption, man can find justification, man can find forgiveness and restoration through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 21 to 23, which we looked at last week, uh, introduces the wonder of Christ's provision. And the remainder of the chapter from verse 24 through verse number 31 expounds upon that wonder. And so we see verse 21 to 23 introduces it. Then the rest of the chapter uh, expounds upon what it means that Christ died for us. What it means, that what Calvary means, what Christ accomplished there at Calvary. So as I said, I've titled the remainder of this chapter, The Glory of the Gospel. Here in this passage, Paul explains the application and the function of the gospel. And of course, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul explains the application and the function of the gospel. In other words, how the gospel works in the lives of men. And so we're going to take a few moments this morning to start to begin considering this provision, how it works and what it provides. We're going to read uh, verse number 20 down through the end of the chapter this morning, and then we're going to pray and get into the message. The Bible says in Romans 3 and verse number 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you remember last week, we said that this verse, verse number 20, summarizes 
everything that Paul has covered up to this point in chapter number 1, chapter number 2, and the first half of chapter number 3, Paul drives home the fact that man is unable by keeping the law or by good deeds to merit salvation. He summarizes all that in verse number 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Then we come to verse number 21, and the whole attitude of everything that's been covered up to this point changes, whereas we see that he begins verse number 21 with these words, but now, up to this point, man is condemned. Up to this point, man is depraved. Up to this point, man has no hope. Up to this point, man deserves hell. Up to this point, righteousness is out of man's reach. But now, something has changed that also has changed the circumstances for man. He said, but now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all, them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here in these verses he said, what has changed? Now the righteousness of God is available to mankind how? Through the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in verse number 24 that he begins to expound upon this righteousness that he has introduced. In verse number 24 it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yea, of the Gentiles also seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Let us pray. Father, Lord, it's good to be in your house this morning. Lord, it's good to be among your people. It's good, uh, Father, Lord, to worship you together and lift our hands in praise to you. Father, it's wonderful to, to hear the stories of those, uh, uh, Lord, that you have blessed this week, those you have met with. Father, I thank you for them. Father, Lord, as we open your word this morning, Lord, and we begin to look at these wonderful truths, uh, uh, Father, Lord, of the sacrifice that you made uh, on the behalf of sinful mankind. Father, I pray, uh, Lord, that as I attempt to look at your word, as I attempt to open your word, uh, Father, Lord, that you, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, will open the word of God. And Father, Lord, I pray that those of us who have put our faith in you, uh, uh, Lord, that we will be, uh, uh, Lord, reminded 
of the magnificence of what you've done. And Father Lord, it will thrill our hearts and it will thrill our souls. Uh, Father Lord, as we remember, Lord, all that you did in making a way of salvation. Father, I pray if there be those here this morning uh, that have never trusted you, they've never believed on you, they've never put their faith in you for salvation. Uh, Lord, I pray that through this message this morning, uh, uh, Father Lord, that they will understand, uh, oh Lord, the weight of what you did. They will understand why it was necessary. Uh, and Father Lord, they will recognize that without you there is no hope. And Father, that they will put their faith in you for salvation. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the message of your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you, Lord, for the clarity of the gospel. I thank you, dear Lord, that it has been made available. I thank you, dear Lord, that we are without excuse, Father, because you have made a way possible. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, uh, to be a people, Lord, that will put our faith in you and, Lord, that will never lose the fire of what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful witnesses. Help us, Lord, to be a light in the community. Help us, Lord, to be the ones uh, that turn souls uh, from the path of destruction. Father, I pray. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen, amen. I do apologize, still still have this uh, cough, this nagging cough that don't seem to want to go away. I'm uh, hoping and praying that I make it through the message without coughing, uh, but uh, I may pause and drink uh, quite a bit to keep that flowing, but uh, y'all pray for me uh, that the Lord will bless me. I think to myself, well, what I need to do is just stay calm and just talk, but that just doesn't work. I just, I get going and I get, I get excited about what I'm talking about and away I go. I was talking to another preacher the other day and I told him, I said, I really don't like my style of preaching. I said, I listen to these guys that are intellectual and, and man, they can just lay out the truth and they just stand up there and talk and you're, I'm on the edge of my seat like, wow. And I think to myself, that's the kind of preacher I want to be. So I prepare myself a message and I think that's how it's going to be. And then I get behind the pulpit and just jump around like an Indian. So that's just how the Lord made me. And boy, I tell you what, the, just a little sideline here, a little piece of advice. Be who God made you. Be who God made you because he made you who you are and the way you are so that he can use you effectively in the place that he has for you. And if we get real busy trying to change, now I'm not talking about improving. We should always try to improve. We should always try to increase our education. We should always try to be better at what we do. But if we start trying to change who we are to impress people, we're going to miss what it is that God has designed us for. So there you go, little little nugget for you to take home this morning. Here in the book of Romans, here in the book of Romans, boy, I, I pray that this book is a blessing, being a blessing to you as we're studying through it. I pray that if you're unsaved, that this book is speaking to you and revealing to you your need of salvation. God spoke through Paul, and Paul, through the inspiration of God, penned this book. And boy, I'm telling you what, the book of Romans just unfolds the gospel so clearly and so plainly. I pray that the Lord is using it in your life. But here in this passage that we've just read, we're provided with a description of the gift of grace. 
We're given an understanding of the application of salvation and we're given a clarification of the aspects of salvation. And so we want to look at each of these individually starting in this message and probably when I get back we'll be hopefully concluding this chapter in the next message. But the first thing that we want to look at this morning concerning the glory of the gospel is first of all the gift of of grace. The gift of grace. In verse number 24, the Bible says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In verse number 23, if you remember when we read our text, verse number 23 says that righteousness without the law has been made available. There is a way to appear righteous before God without having to keep every aspect of the law. Righteousness without the law has been made available. Now verse number 24 begins to explore how this works. How is it possible that I could obtain the righteousness of God without doing some type of works on my own? And really that question right there is what has kept thousands of people from putting their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because they feel like there has to be something that I do. There has to be something required of me. There has to be some type of work that I have to do. But the Bible says that righteousness without the law is available. And he answers how this is possible in the remainder of the chapter. We see in verse number 24, he begins to explain how this imputed righteousness works. We see in verse number 24 a couple of things concerning this gift of grace. Now I'll go over these a couple of times because they're not on the screen if you're taking notes. But first of all, we see concerning this gift of grace in verse number 24 that this justification... This righteousness without the law is freely given. It is freely given. It says in verse number 24, being justified freely. This righteousness without the law is something that is freely given. It requires nothing from you. There is nothing that must be done to earn it. There is nothing that must be done to purchase it. There is nothing about you that is worthy of receiving it. It is not something that is given to you because of an indebtedness. It is freely given. No strings attached. This justification is freely given. When we consider the gift of grace... It is a free gift, no strings attached. Not only is it freely given, but we also see in verse number 24 that this justification is provided by grace. This justification is freely given, but second of all, it is provided by grace. Whenever you receive a gift or you receive something that someone has given to you, uh, whenever you get something that is free... It may be free to you, but it's cost somebody something. We make the statement that nothing is truly free because somebody 
had to pay for it. You may receive it for free. It may cost you nothing, but somebody had to pay for it. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Somebody had to provide it. Somebody had to make it available to you. And we see that this gift of grace, is, per, or this gift of the salvation is provided by grace. It says being justified freely by His grace. So this gift that we receive free was provided for us. It was made available to us by the grace of God. It wasn't something that we deserved. It was something that He made available out of His grace, out of His love, out of His kindness. He made it available through His grace. So it's freely given. It's provided by grace. And here's where I was getting ahead of myself. It is paid for by Christ Jesus. Third of all, it is paid for by Christ Jesus, freely given, provided by grace, and then paid for by Christ Jesus. He says being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now as I was saying that everything that we get has to be paid for by someone and this gift of salvation that we can receive freely was paid for by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So whenever we consider the glory of the gospel, we look at the gift of grace, we see that it's freely given. We see it's provided for us by grace and then it's paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. The next thing that we come to concerning the glory of the gospel, first we see the gift of grace, but then second of all, in verse 25 and 26, which is probably... As far as we'll get today is these two verses. We see the application of faith. So whenever we look at the glory of the gospel, gospel being the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel being the means whereby we might be saved. Whenever we look at the gospel, first we see that it is a gift of grace paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second thing that we see is that it must be received through faith. It must be received through faith. We see the application of faith. Now I'm just going to be honest with you right here. We're going to, we're going to do a deep dive and then come back out. So you're going to need to stay with me, alright? I'm going to do my best uh, to repeat myself and to be as easy to follow as possible. But if you start thinking about dinner, you're going to miss it, okay? If you start wondering about the score on your sports team, you're going to miss it. You're going to have to stay with me because we're going to do a deep dive and then we're going to come back and I believe if you follow with me, you will be blessed by the message this morning if the Holy Spirit ministers to you. My words aren't worth anything. But anyway, we see the application of faith. First we see that this righteousness without the law is provided by grace, but verse 25 and 26 reveal that this salvation is received by faith. This is how we receive it. Grace makes it available. Faith makes it mine. Grace made it available. Faith makes it mine. Romans 3 and verse number 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, speaking of Jesus Christ, Jesus whom God has set forth uh, to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, the Lord Jesus Christ's blood, to declare his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth 
in Jesus. Now there's a lot to unpack in these two verses and we don't want to make the mistake of missing the truth that is found here in this verse. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to, and this is where we're going to, we're going to dive into a little bit of theology and then come back out, but the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the word propitiation. Propitiation. You see there in verse number 25, whom God, speaking of Jesus, God has set Jesus forth to be a propitiation through faith in the blood of Jesus. That is, the, that is what this phrase is saying. He has set him forth to be a propitiation. And I want us to take a moment and look at this word propitiation. What is it that is being said here in this word? What is it that God hath set Jesus forth to be for you and I when he refers to him as a propitiation? The definition of this word, propitiation, is having the power to make atonement. Having the ability to satisfy an offense and remove the guilt of the offender. So the obligation of the offended person to punish the crime is canceled. Now I'll read that to you again because I know oftentimes I'm taking notes and at this point I've got about the first four words. And I'm like, what did he say? So I'll read that to you again. Here we go. Propitiation means having the power to make atonement. God hath set Jesus forth to be our propitiation. He has set him forth to be the one that has the power to make atonement. In addition to that, uh, propitiation means having the ability to satisfy an offense, the catch is now, and remove the guilt of the offender so that the obligation of the offended to punish the crime is canceled. So just follow with me here for just a minute. God is righteous. God is just. God is holy. God cannot stand. He cannot tolerate sin. It violates the righteousness and the holiness of his character. Therefore, when man breaks the law of God, there is an obligation to punish the crime. There is an obligation that the offender must be dealt with. It would, it would violate the righteousness of God if sin was not addressed. It would violate the holiness of God if he simply dismissed the sin that had been committed. So there is an obligation for God to deal with the crime. But a propitiation is someone that has the ability to so satisfy the debt that the offended is no longer under any obligation to satisfy or punish the crime. God has set Jesus forth to be 
our propitiation. He is the one who has the ability to satisfy what we owe to such an extent that it never, ever needs to be dealt with again. The Bible refers to this. It tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far hath our iniquity been removed from us. It has been taken care of. It is final. It is settled. And it never, ever has to be visited again. If you pull up the books and you flip back through the books to find the record of the sins that you have committed, you will be flipping through blank pages because there is no record. There is no sin that needs to be dealt with. There is no offense that needs settled. There's no punishment that's been left undone because the propitiation removed the need for the offender to punish the crime. This is the meaning of propitiation. The word propitiation, though, has a much deeper meaning than what we've just looked at. The word propitiation also has reference to the mercy seat. The word propitiation has reference to the mercy seat. As a matter of fact, the the Greek word translated propitiation only appears twice in the New Testament. In one instance is right here where it is translated propitiation. The other instance is in the book of Hebrews where it is translated mercy seat. The word propitiation ties us back to the mercy seat. You say, okay, Pastor John, fill me in. What is the mercy seat? The mercy seat is the lid of the ark of the covenant. I'm sure you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies. First in the tabernacle in the wilderness. When the Israelites was traveling through the wilderness, they would set up the tabernacle. In the back of the tabernacle, there was a part that was sectioned off. It was the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod that budded. The top the, of the Ten Commandments, uh, these things were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was kept there in the Holy of Holies with the mercy seat on top of it. The mercy seat had a great significance. Once a year, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter. First it was kept in the tabernacle. Let me just clarify this before I get ahead of myself. First it was kept in the tabernacle. Later it was kept in the temple, but again in the Holy of Holies in the temple. The tabernacle was the temporary shelter. The temple was the permanent shelter. Both had the Holy of Holies. The the ritual that I'm about to describe took place in both. Once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would enter into the Holy of of holies. Now the Holy of Holies had a veil across the front of it, a big heavy veil. We remember that on Calvary this veil was rent in twain. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there was a veil across the front of the Holy of Holies and no one was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies because inside the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat is where the presence 
of God resided. Once a year, the high priest would take the blood of a bull for his own sins and the blood of a goat for the sins of the people. And the high priest would go behind the veil to the mercy seat. Whenever he would go in, history tells us that he would have bales on his robe so the people could hear him moving around and there would be a cord fastened so they could drag him out in case he died while he was in there making atonement because no one was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. First he would sprinkle the blood of the bull for his own sins. He would sprinkle the blood of the bull there at the mercy seat. Then he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat. And by doing this, he would make atonement for the sins of the people for another year. For another year, it would sit there, waiting for the time that it would be visited again. In the Holy of Holies, we see, three, we see several things. We see, the, we see the Ark of the Covenant. We see the mercy seat. We see the high priest. We see the presence of God. We see the substitutionary blood of the sacrificed offering there all surrounded on the mercy seat. This reference to Christ being our propitiation, this reference to Christ being our propitiation links him permanently to accomplishing the job that was temporarily done at the mercy seat. So what we see here is when he says that Christ is our propitiation, temporarily we went to the mercy seat. Temporarily we sprinkled the blood of bulls and goats. Temporarily we gained we gained atonement temporarily. But whenever Paul said that Jesus is our propitiation, he is indicating to us that Jesus fulfilled permanently what the mercy seat fulfilled temporarily. Jesus is our mercy seat. There are a few things I want to notice between Christ being our propitiation and the message of the mercy seat here in the Old Testament. First, the mercy seat is where the priest entered the presence of of God. It was at the mercy seat where the priest entered the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant, as I've just said, resided in the Holy of Holies. First in the tabernacle, later in the temple. The Holy of Holies was separated from everything else with a heavy veil and only the high priest could enter once a year to make atonement for himself and the sins of the people. Now stay with me. Remember that we're making application to what Paul said, that Jesus was our propitiation. He was saying that Jesus is our mercy seat. When the priest went behind that veil and he entered the presence of the mercy seat, he was entering the presence of God. He was entering a place where God was inhabiting. The mercy seat is where you entered the presence of God. But now, remember verse number 21, but now, because Christ has been our propitiation, the, the the presence of God is no longer limited to the Holy of Holies on top of the mercy seat because now the presence of God has been manifested through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was once manifested on the mercy seat is now manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We see that Jesus, when we see him as the propitiation, we see that he is the presence of God among men. Now secondly, in this comparison of Christ to the mercy seat, we find in the Old Testament, we see first that you entered the presence of God at the mercy seat, but we see secondly, the mercy seat is where you encountered the glory of God. The mercy seat is where you encountered the glory of God. In the book of Exodus, the children of Israel were traveling through the wilderness. You may remember the story. The Bible tells us that as they went through the wilderness, uh, that there was a pillar of cloud that led them by day uh, and a pillar of fire that led them by night. Uh, we call this uh, the Shekinah glory of God. Uh, this is the, the uh, revelation of God leading the children of Israel through the wilderness uh, where when the cloud moved or when the fire moved, the people moved. When the cloud stood still or the fire stood still, the people stopped. It led them through the wilderness. And whenever the people would stop and they would erect the tabernacle, the pillar of fire would stand over the Holy of Holies. The Bible tells us in the book of Exodus that Moses could not enter the tabernacle because it was filled with the glory of God. The mercy seat is where you encountered the glory of God. It is where you entered the presence of God. It's where you encountered the glory of God. Now Paul says that Jesus is our mercy seat. But now, after Calvary, Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is the presence of God manifested among men, but Jesus also is the glory of God manifested among men. It is in Jesus that we encounter the glory of God. We see that you enter the presence of God. You encounter the glory of God. But then thirdly, when we look at this comparison of Christ to the mercy seat, we find that the mercy seat is where the priest experienced the atonement. The mercy seat is where the priest experienced the atonement. As I said, the mercy seat was the lid to the Ark of the Covenant which contained the law of the Ten Commandments. There was a symbolism here. And the symbolism was this. Man had broke the law. The mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. As the priest entered with the blood, the mercy seat was a place of judgment because man had broken the law of a holy God. As the priest entered to the mercy seat with the blood, the mercy seat was a place of judgment. But when the blood was sprinkled, the place of judgment became a place of restitution. Once the blood was sprinkled, atonement was made, and the relationship was restored, the mercy seat became the place of restitution. It was a place of judgment because it represented the law of God, but it became a place of restoration because the blood had been applied and man was no longer guilty. This is the picture of the mercy seat. It is at the mercy seat where you experience the atonement. 
Now when I compare the mercy seat to our Savior, I see a broken law. When I look at you and I, and I look at the holiness of God, I see a broken law. I see a holy God. I see sinful mankind, and I see a cruel, rugged cross of judgment. I see in Christ a picture of the mercy seat because as our spotless lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ hung on that cruel cross and his blood run down that rough-hewn beam and fell onto the ground, that place of judgment became a place of restoration. That, that image of judgment, that image of a law has been broken when the blood was applied. It became a place of restoration. It became a symbol no longer of judgment but a symbol of freedom. It became a symbol that the payment had been made. Whenever I look at the Old Testament picture, I see some things involved. I see a high priest who brought the blood. I see the mercy seat where the blood must be applied. I see the Ark of the Covenant. I see the law. I see all these things. But whenever I look at Christ, I see in Christ our propitiation that He is our high priest who is qualified to bring the blood. I see in Christ our mercy seat, the intercessor between God and man. And I see in Christ the sacrifice, the spotless lamb that provided the blood that could wash away the sin of all mankind. When Paul said that he is our propitiation, he was saying he is everything. It is complete. He is all you need. Salvation is available through the Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness without the law has been manifested. Why? Because he is your mercy seat. That is the truth that Paul was driving home. When Paul describes Jesus as our propitiation, he unveils the truth that Christ contains everything necessary to be able to satisfy our crime to the point that it no longer needs to be settled by the offender. God has been satisfied because of the work that Christ completed. God has been satisfied. Jesus is our propitiation. It is through Jesus we can enter the presence of God. It is through Jesus we can encounter the glory of God. And it is through Jesus we can experience the atonement provided by God. The Old Testament symbolism of the mercy seat and the tabernacle and the high priest is no longer needed because it has been finished in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with all this laid in place, and I know we're getting a little late, but I'm getting ready to wrap it up. With all this being laid in place, I want us to go back to the application of faith. What is it that we're believing? How do we obtain this righteousness without the law? Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that we're believing? What is this application of faith? 
Whenever we put our faith in Christ, we are believing that He is sufficient. We are accepting the fact that He is enough. We are turning loose of every effort or every acknowledgement that we may make of ourselves in thinking that there is any thread of ability in ourself to earn salvation. We are turning loose of that and we are recognizing that salvation can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ and I am believing that He is enough. I don't need anything else. I don't need to add to it. I don't need to help Him with it. It is enough enough when I come to Christ to receive this righteousness without the law. I must receive it by faith and the faith that I put in Christ is believing that His blood is enough. That believing that His sacrifice completely fully paid my debt and that because of Him I can stand before God righteous because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we're believing. That is faith unto salvation. Believing that He is enough. There are plenty of people that believe Jesus was a real person. There's plenty of people that believe He did miracles. There's plenty of people that believe that He had 12 apostles and He really lived and all these type of things, but they don't believe that He is enough. Salvation comes when we recognize that He is enough. There's nothing else I can do to add to it or take away from it but that God in His love, for God so loved the world, God in His love gave His only begotten Son to be the propitiation for your sin. And when I believe that, salvation is mine. The debt is settled. The crime is no longer recorded. And I can stand before God as righteous and holy. That is believing. What are we believing? And secondly, concerning this application of faith, we ask the question, what are we receiving? What are we receiving? We've already covered it, but we're going to mention it just briefly. Verse number 26 to declare, excuse me, verse number 25, to declare His righteousness, right there in the middle of the verse, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just, speaking of God, and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. What is it that we're receiving? Whenever we put our faith in Christ, whenever we put our faith in Christ, we receive the remission of sin. Our sins are washed away. Without this faith, without this salvation, the first two and a half chapters of Romans tells you you are hopeless, you are without God, and you have no chance other than to spend eternity in a burning hell. But now, because of Christ, if you put your faith in Him, all your sins have been removed. What am I receiving? The remission of sin. There is no more guilt. The remission of sin. But catch verse number 26. To declare at this time His righteousness, 
Now we're speaking about God's righteousness. Remember I said that God was just and holy and it would violate His righteousness to dismiss our sin without the sin being dealt with because His law declares that sin must be dealt with and that the wages of sin is death. So in Christ being our propitiation, we receive the remission of sin. This declares the righteousness of God. He didn't just dismiss your sin as if it was no big deal. No, it was a very, very big deal. And it had to be just, it had to be dealt with. So in order to do that, he sent his son to be the propitiation to be the one who dealt with our sin for us so that the penalty had been paid. Therefore, the righteousness of God was not violated. It said that he might, to declare his righteousness, that he might be just. God didn't break any of his laws in making a way of salvation for you. That not only might he be righteous and just, but that he might also be the justifier of all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God will be the justifier. What does that mean? If you believe that Christ's work was enough and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've repented your sin, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God will mark you as justified, completely finished, and settled. So when we look at this thing of the application of faith, what is it that we're believing? We're believing that the finished work of Christ is enough. And what is it that we receive? We receive eternal life. We receive the righteousness of God. We receive the forgiveness of sin when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever we look at this thing, I see three things. What do we receive? We receive the righteousness of Christ. We receive the remission of sin and then we receive an irreversible justification. An irreversible justification. I wanted to make this note because if we understand what Christ did and we understand the scope of what he accomplished, which is why I wanted to dig into the mercy seat and bring all this out. We understand the scope of what he accomplished. As I said a little bit ago, the book... The record of our sin is a blank book now. There's nothing there. What's the song we sing? What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. They're gone. There is no sin because Christ's work was complete. There is no sin. Therefore, if I have believed in Christ and I have been justified by God, there's no going back on this transaction because I'm no longer guilty. There is no longer anything to accuse me of. There is no longer anything to hold over my head. The Bible says in Corinthians, I am a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It is an irreversible justification. The debt has been paid. Justice has been settled. I have been declared righteous. In our next message, prayerfully when I get back, We'll be looking at verse number 27. I love this first, first phrase. I'm just going to give it to you to think on. Where is boasting then? I don't know if that just rings true with y'all or if y'all done checked out on me, but if you could come back for just a minute. 
Where is boasting then? (laughs) Whenever I recognize that it is all finished through Him. He did it all. Nothing left for me to do. I am declared righteous solely on the grounds of Him being my propitiation. Where is boasting? I have nothing to boast of. I have nothing to brag about. There is nothing that I have done. It's all because of Him. But i got to quit now because that's next week's sermon. Where is boasting? This morning, I asked you this question. Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Seriously, have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I really believe there are those in this congregation who still are hoping that they're going to make it to heaven. They're still hoping that they've done enough. They're still hoping that they've done all the right things. I truly believe there's some that's never genuinely put their faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning... The Bible's been very clear. Without God, you're hopeless. But that doesn't mean you have to spend eternity in hell. 1 John tells us, These things have I written unto you that ye may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to go through life hoping that you're going to make it to heaven. Jesus has completed the work. He has paid the debt. He has satisfied the offended. All you must do is put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, have you put your faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus or are you still trying to get to heaven on your own? I'm going to ask each of you to stand there where you are. Miss Debbie's going to make her way to the piano. This morning, if the Lord spoke to your heart, I ask you to respond to this invitation. Christians, I believe you know that there are folks that need to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know there are people who are struggling with understanding salvation. Christians, as we have this invitation, I ask you to pray. I ask you to pray. Come to this altar and pray. Ask God to work in the lives of those that are lost. This isn't no playing matter. Things are wrapping up. Eternity is near. The trumpet's going to sound. You have no promise of tomorrow. There are folks who need to make their peace with God. As Miss Debbie plays, if the Lord spoke to your heart, you come. Christians, pray, pray that God will work in the hearts of those that need to put their faith in Him. Miss Debbie.